Happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath. Um, today is November 19th, 2002. On the first Sabbath of September, I want to say September 3rd, 2022, 12 weeks ago, we were an hour back. We started a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. School was just beginning to start for some of us. It was just before Labor Day. Some of us had just started our first week of school. And finally, 12 whole weeks later, we're in part 12 of the worst sermon ever, our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's finally here, the long-awaited series finales for the worst sermon ever. And over the course of this past really three months. I don't know about you and me. For anyone that's been a part of, if you've been here for all 12 parts, you came and went here and there, you listened to some online, you listened to some of us in person, or if this is your first week here and you're joining us, welcome as well to our online audience. We're glad you could join us for the series finale of this series as we finish the worst sermon ever in our studies of Ecclesiastes. Over 12 weeks, we've covered really a lot of different Topics from the meaning of pleasure and wisdom and work, how to be wise with our money, the role of community, what heaven has to do with our faith, what it means to have enough, and what it means to really hear the voice of God, and among other things. And I can say for myself that this has been a really, really big blessing for me in being a part of this series and also preparing the messages that have gone into the series. And I hope I can say the same for you. And in this final part of the series, and if you've been following us, we've essentially been going chronologically, more or less, through the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And we're finishing with about the last six verses in Ecclesiastes, which kind of form a sort of epilogue, a conclusion, concluding remarks by the author of the book of Ecclesiastes on what he really thinks the book is all about. If you've been following us, the book of Ecclesiastes is so rich, rich and so deep, but it's kind of confusing. Most of the book is the teacher pointing out these weird paradoxes and confusing circumstances in life. And then a bunch of times he talks about how life seems meaningless or it's hard to find the meaning of life. And here, at the very end of the book, there's almost like a narrator that jumps in. in a little epilogue where the author of the book gives his thoughts on what he thinks the book of Ecclesiastes is really all about. But before we go any deeper... I want to join, I ask you to join me in a quick word of prayer before we go into the word. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity for us to be together on the Sabbath to meet in person and to be a part of this message in your word, Lord. Father, I ask that every word that I speak from now on, Lord, be yours alone, may be a tool and a vessel of your will, Father. Open our hearts, soften hearts, open minds, Lord. You know who needs to hear this message. You know who this is for. Father, I ask that your will be done in Rock Fellowship as it is done in heaven. I praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Before we actually read that last part of Ecclesiastes, if you're joining us for the first time or if you're not that familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a very important thing you need to know about the book of Ecclesiastes that's a little bit unique. In the book, it doesn't seem like it, but there are two voices or almost two characters in the book of Ecclesiastes. There is the teacher or the preacher, and he's the main voice. You hear him for about 98% of the book of Ecclesiastes. But there's also a voice of the actual author, the one who compiled all of these works of the teacher. And you hear him in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, where he just briefly introduces the teacher. And you hear him again at the very end of the book. And today, 
we get to hear what the author of the book, not the teacher, the author of the book has to say about everything that you've heard so far. Twelve chapters of the teacher, and the last six verses, the author says, all right, that was a lot of information. Let me give you my thoughts. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9. 9 through 12 gives us his thought. This is the beginning, the first time the, the author comes back in. In addition to being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Next verse, the preacher sought to find delightful words and write words of truth correctly. The words of the wise are like goads, and masters of these collections are like driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive study is wearing to the body. This verse, honestly, is a verse I wish I knew growing up. And for those of you that are students out there, and you feel like, you know, you've got a lot of stuff on your plate, this is not a bad verse to know. Pull out, I wish I knew this, and talk to my parents when I did my 17th Kumon book over summer break. Pull it out. Hello, Mom. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says, too much study is wearing for the body. It might honestly even be a sin. So we're working on that one theologically. But honestly, this is, there's, some, there's some truth to what he's saying here. And really, that verse aside, the teacher or the author compiles, he summarizes his thoughts by saying three main things. If you were to summarize these verses, the first thing he says is he reinforces his admiration and respect for the teacher. Hey, you heard a lot of wise things, and honestly, it's all good stuff. The teacher is smart. He's wise, and he has good intentions. He's seeking out the truth. The second thing he talks about, he talks about goads and shepherds. And what a goad is, is essentially it's a sharp, pointy stick that you poke livestock with that direct them along the life path or on the right path. And what he's saying there is, listen, if you were to apply all the things that the teacher just said, you would probably be better off for it. And using the metaphor of the goad or the stick, he's saying, you know what? It might not be the easiest thing to do. It might be difficult to apply everything he talked about. But if you do, you will be like a, she a sheep that is guided by a shepherd walking along the right path. It's good for you. And then that last verse he talks about, my son be warned, the writing of many books is endless and excessive study is wearing to the body. He essentially says, to wrap it up, take it easy. Take it easy. Pace yourself. There's a lot to unpack here. And he said a lot of things don't hurt yourself, right? And he's almost like saying there's such a thing as too much philosophizing. There's such a thing as too much studying. There's such a thing as too much pondering about life. And he almost implies that even if you wanted to, and even if you tried to, you would never really be able to understand all of life's mysteries anyways. So pace yourself. There's such a thing as too much. And honestly, and to understand why he might say something like this, right? Because it almost seems a little belittling, belittling of the teacher, right? He's saying, hey, or of the readers, and all this stuff that you've read, hey, take it easy, pace yourself, don't go too crazy. There's a lot to unpack here. And depending on how you read it, he's almost implying that even if you wanted to, like, there's no way you could, just after reading this book, just understand all that there is to know about life. So pace yourselves. At this point, I want to pause here. And again, if this is your first time joining us, um, this may be new to you. But if you've been joining us throughout the series, there's this concept, this word that we've been talking about. Or it's almost like the key concept in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's this term that's translated in English as meaningless. If you read the Bible, read Ecclesiastes, the term meaningless, or in some translations, vanity comes up a lot. But the original Hebrew word is hevel, and it literally translates to smoke and or vapor. And it's important that you understand this concept because the teacher uses the metaphor of smoke to describe 
life's paradoxical mysteries. And a lot of times you'll say, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. What he's really saying is, it's like smoke, it's like smoke, life is like smoke. And when he's saying that, what he's referring to are these two main qualities of smoke. Smoke, like life, is fleeting. If you've ever seen a campfire or smoke, it kind of rises up and it kind of is also kind of ambiguous, right? It has a shape. It kind of doesn't have a shape. It's not completely see-through, but it's not solid either. And before you know it, it's gone. You can never really grasp it. And it's there for a second. It's not solid, but it's not nothing but it's definitely temporary. So when the teacher is talking about life and the, the meaninglessness or the seemingly meaninglessness of life, he's referring to these two aspects of life, that it's temporary and that it's a little bit ambiguous, almost paradoxical in a sense. And he spends about 12 chapters in his book pointing out all these aspects that make life the way that it is. But you can categorize everything the teacher says into three main reasons. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the three reasons that the teacher essentially says that life is meaningless or hard to decipher its meaning is A, the march of time, the endless march of time that we're all subject to. B, the fact that you are all guaranteed to eventually one day die. And C, life has this sort of random nature to it, this almost like luck, chance, unpredictable aspect to life that makes the meaning of life difficult to decipher. In other words, because our lives are really just a blip in the grand scheme of the universe, because we all eventually die, and because so much of life is determined by random chance, including when and how we die, the teacher comes to this conclusion time and time again, hevel, hevel, or like smoke, like smoke. Life is like smoke. It, it's hard to really make sense of it. And I think it, it's very relatable in the sense that we attach meaning and significance in a lot of ways in someone's ability to make an impact. If you made an impact, if you made a lasting impact in society, you did something good. You did something significant. I think that's why people, especially back in the days, were so obsessed with what kind of legacy can I, can I leave? After I die and pass on, what will people remember me by? And people were obsessed with their reputation, what they would be known for. Because in a sense, I think that's our human way of trying to make meaning out of life. If life is temporary and, life, and we're all subject to this course of time, what can I do to leave my imprint? Right? Think of all the famous historical figures you know. They kind of fall in that category of trying to make an impact and leaving something that would last longer than themselves. But in the same line of thought, the reality of death makes everything we do on life intrinsically temporary. Nothing truly lasts. We all eventually die. And lastly, how can you find meaning when so much of life is at the mercy of sheer dumb luck? Where you are born, who you are born to, the upbringing you have, the genetics you have, so much just before you begin life. There's so much of life that's outside of your control and really due to random chance, and that makes the meaning of life difficult to decipher. In short, most of the book of Ecclesiastes is a teacher pretty much making all these observations about life that ultimately lead to the conclusion that he draws, which is, I'm not 100% sure. Now, before we go deeper into that, um, it's important to note that the teacher although he never really like prays to God and he mentions God here and there in the book, he never really seems overly religious. It's very clear that he's not, an agno uh, not agnostic or not atheist. He views life, he makes these observations about life under the premise that there is a God, that there is a higher power and he refers to God every now and again. But again, the book of Ecclesi Ecclesiastes is not overly religious. But I think that when you read what the teacher says, his conclusion about life and the meaning of life and how to find it is more or less, I'm not really sure. 
There's no verse where he goes, so in conclusion, this is the meaning of life. He never says, so ultimately what you have to do is X, Y, and Z. You won't find that verse from the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. So the question is, now that we're at the end of this series and we've preached 11 sermons on all these little tidbits of wisdom that the teacher has given, what do we do with the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole? Like, what's the, what's the application? Now what? You pointed out all these difficult questions. You asked good questions, insightful questions, but if you can't really answer them, what is the point? Because the end, the teacher never really gives us a direct answer, or at least not a satisfying answer as to what the meaning of life is all about. And before, actually, we read uh, verse 9, just before the author jumps back in for the concluding remarks, this is the last thing the teacher says. The last bar that he has before he signs out, and we don't hear from him again, is in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Hevel, hevel. Everything is like smoke. And then he signs out. What makes that verse kind of unsettling is that's actually the first thing he says at the beginning of the book. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, after the teacher says, these are the words of the teacher, introducing the teacher. He comes in and he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And then he ends his speech, his lecture, his seminar with those exact same words. And you read it and you're like, did I just waste my time? Like, what was the point? And like, you read this and there's this sense of you didn't really make any progress reading the book. The first thing he says is he introduces this idea that life is hard to understand. It's meaningless. And then he goes through 11 and a half chapters of all these complex philosophical questions. And it's deep. It's interesting. It's very philosophical if you're into that stuff. It's very existential. And then he ends the same way he started with, yeah, I never really figured it out either. I'm out. That's really how the teacher, his speech ends. And I think this is highly intentional. I think the author of Ecclesiastes meant for it to be this way because I think he's trying to tell us that the teacher never really figured it out. The point of Ecclesiastes is the teacher asked all these questions, had these wonderful insights that he never really figured out. And at the end of the day, the teacher he came to terms with, yeah, I can't figure it out. Despite how wise I am, despite how much I know, and if you read the book, you can tell the teacher is definitely not some young, inexperienced person. He's someone that's lived life. He's done a lot of things, been to a lot of places, met a lot of people, had a lot of resources. And at the end of it all, he comes to the conclusion that, yeah, I couldn't really figure out everything. I couldn't figure out all there is to know. I had some thoughts here and there, but ultimately, I couldn't figure out all that there was to know about life. Hevel, hevel, everything is Hevel. And then, the, and then he ends, the author comes back in and says, that guy was very wise. Was a very wise man. He was looking for the truth. And that leaves you, the reader, in a state of, did I waste 12 weeks of my life? It left me with the impression of when Pastor Chris was like, all right, you're wrapping up this sermon. And I read Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and I was like, what? How can you end your speech the same way you started with the same kind of hopeless kind of confusion? The wise teacher died without ever truly figuring out life. He never really cracked the code. He never really unraveled all of life mysteries. But I think that's what the teacher and the author are trying to tell us. The point is, he, despite how wise he was, never figured out everything there was to know about life. And he was okay with that. The message that the author is trying to tell us, trying to tell you and trying to tell me that you 
and I will never be able to understand all aspects of life here on earth, and that's okay. Because, as belittling as that might sound, that's okay because neither you, nor the teacher, nor the author, nor I, none of us are God. And it's important to note that, and when I say that, you might be like, yeah, well, obviously. But think about it. Think about it. I feel like the important, it's important to know that throughout the book, again, there are mentions of God, and, and the teacher acknowledges that, that there is some higher power. And occasionally throughout the book, you see him almost defer to God. Right? There are mentions where he mentions God and says, you know what? In those moments, just trust God. Just obey God. And this is the author's conclusion. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, given everything that he said, this is the conclusion Right? Acknowledging that the teacher just ended in a loop of saying, yeah, everything is meaningless. He's saying the teacher is wise. These are the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. The conclusion, again, this is the author speaking, when everything has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. This is the last verse. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. In light of the fact that life is heaven, in light of the fact that you and I are not God, this is what the author says. Fear God and obey him, and remember that God will bring judgment. I want to look at that first phrase, and if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this once or twice. Fearing God, or the fear of the Lord. For some of us, it's a confusing kind of like unsettling phrase. For some of us, it's nothing more than a luxury clothing brand. But for, at the core of this phrase, I think there's this understanding, right? The fear of the Lord, the fear of God. It's not a very, like, feel-good thing to say, right? And we read it, and we talk, we love the verses about Jesus loved the little children, and he reached out to those that were on the out fringe, and we love the stories of healing. But when it comes to fearing God, there's an aspect of, like, unpleasantness to this. But I think at the core of this phrase, at the core of what this book of Ecclesiastes is really about, is at the core of fearing God is you and I acknowledging that between God and us, there is in fact a gap. There is a gap in power. There's a gap in understanding. There's a gap in wisdom. There's a gap in ability. And I think the fear of God is an important reminder, especially for Christians today. And I don't know about you and me, but when I grew up in the church, and if you grew up in the church, you maybe had a similar experience. I grew up learning about God, about a God that loved me and a God that would be there for me whenever and a God that died for me before I ever really even understood who God was. My first introduction to God was he is someone that did everything and put his whole life on the line for you. He loves you more than he loves his own existence and he would be willing to do anything for you. You can pray to him and say whatever you want to him and no matter what time of day, he will be at your beck and call. He cares for you, he loves for you, and that's like, that's who he is. And it's not entirely wrong, but for me, it created almost a false, incomplete picture of who God was. And this is interesting because I asked this question in our youth Sabbath school just half an hour ago, and I asked people, what is your understanding of God? What is your relationship with God like? And the answers I got were very similar to the answers I had grown up. God is my friend. God is my counselor. God is my therapist. God is my... God is my emergency hotline number. God is my customer service. God is there to help me. God is my fairy godmother. And in a lot of ways, our view of God, which is not entirely wrong, but it's been entirely shaped by this sort of approachable best friend person that's here at your beck and call. 
And at times, I've taken his presence in my life for granted. Of course, of course God would love me. That's, that's who he is. Of course God would die for me. That's what God does. Like, that's like his thing. He dies for people because God is just that selfless. Of course God would care about every little thing I pray about. Of course God would care about my chemistry test, and my Game Boy, and my finals, and the girl that I like, and this. Of course God would be available to talk to me 24-7 right? He would drop everything and hear me out no matter time of the day, even if I've never talked to him in a few months. Of course, of course God would do that for me. And that mentality of taking God and who he is, almost taking him for granted, taking his amazing grace and what he's done for us for granted, for me, has been one of the biggest pitfalls in my relationship with God. Again, not to say that God doesn't do any of those things, God does love you. God did sacrifice himself for you. God is in your corner. God does hear everything you say. But for me, that was the complete picture of God. And in a sense, that made God my equal. Not only that, I take it a step further. That made God my slave. And it's a very tough thing to say. But honestly, this, with the things I just described, when I took God's presence in my life for granted, when I said, of course, God would come at my beck and call. Of course, God is like, he's my homie. He's like my neighborhood friend. We grew up together, right? When I took that approach, God became nothing more than like a bodyguard where his job was just to keep me safe. God became simplified to just an errand boy who I call on when I had an inconvenience in my life. God became like a pharmacist. Just, I'm, I feel bad. God, give me medication. Make me feel better. I don't feel good right now. I feel stressed or anxious. Give me, give me the good stuff. God, let me pray, and after I pray, make this headache or stress or anxiety go away. God became my therapist. Here, here's all the stress and anxiety that I'm going through. And what do I offer God? Nothing. What do you call someone that does that for you free of charge? At best, that's an intern. At worst, that's a slave, right? That's someone that you drag around, and he's just there to serve your needs. Again, God does do all of those things. God does love you. God does care for you. But the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, understands that there is more to your relationship with God than someone that just cleans after you and goes before you to clear the path so that you can have a more pleasant life. At times it became dangerous because I felt that God was supposed to love me. That's what he is. If, to be honest, though, that's kind of what he was introduced to me as. Before I even understood who he was or what he was, all I knew was he loves you. He's there for you. He's in your corner, which again is not wrong, but the fear of God reminds us that, listen, this is God and this is you. And there is a gap. And the person that bridged that gap was God. He chose to come down and spend time with you. He chose to listen to you. He chose to drastically lower the quality of his life to become a human so that you could be with him. And there's a huge difference in understanding that, that someone so big, so amazing, so powerful, would just come down to earth, live a drastically low quality of life. He was a nobody for 30 years of his life, had three years of ministry, and then he was killed unjustly just because he loved us. A concept, again, that we can't ever really comprehend. And to be honest, when it comes to the idea of fearing God and having this respect and awe and admiration, you and I actually know what that's like. You may have never felt that way towards God, but we feel that way towards other humans. I don't know if you've ever had a celebrity encounter before. 
Um, I've only had one, and he's honestly not even really a celebrity. But I was in eighth grade, and I went to Disneyland for a choir trip. And that was, I think, the last time I went to Disneyland. And I went, and as I was hanging out, a friend ran up to me and said, dude, you will not believe who's in Disneyland. And I was, I don't know why, the first thing I said was, is it the president? And he's like, no, are you, why would I even say it? He said, AJ Raphael is in Disneyland. And I imagine there are maybe 10 people in this room who knows who that is. AJ Raphael is, I mean, he's by no, he's never been on TV. He was a Filipino-American YouTube singer, songwriter, very niche category of entertainment. Um, and I thought he was the best. He was amazing. He was, you know, Filipino American guys. This is when Asians were kind of running YouTube, but this was also way before YouTubers were making, you know, eight and nine figure salaries. He was literally like, he's got a guitar, a little mic here in his bedroom. Like you could see the sliding glass mirror in the background. You could see his bed, and he would just sing some songs. And I loved his song. He sang a song called She Was Mine. And I was like, I didn't even have a girlfriend, but I was simping to that song. It was so like, I just felt this connection with this dude. And about 10 minutes later, my friend, another friend came up, dude, you will not believe who else is in Disneyland. I was like, who? He goes, Dwayne Johnson is in Disneyland. And I looked at my friends and I said, let's go find AJ Raphael. <laughs> I don't care about this fast and the furious guy. Who cares about him? I want to see AJ Raphael. And I remember, you know, like, how do you even really do that? Like, how do you even find someone in Disneyland? And I just remember, like, we didn't actively search, but everywhere we looked, we like, keep your head on a swivel, man. Look for, like, you know, like a Filipino dude with, like, spiky hair. Like, we'll find him. And we found him, but at a kind of inopportune time. So I was in line, just about to step onto a ride. It was like a water log ride. And as I stepped in, my friends there in front of me were just stepping out, and they're like, yo, he was in the log in front of us. He just got off. We're going to catch him. I said, yo, do not let him leave. Hold him there so when I finish this ride, I can get a picture. And said, we'll try, but I think he was with his girlfriend. I said, okay, okay. I went on this ride, and the minute I, my seatbelt lifted out, I sprinted out, and I was like, where is he? Right? And as I exited the ride and kind of went into this clearing, I saw him, and he was talking to my friend, and he was just hanging out, and I sprinted up to him, like way too aggressively. And I came up to him, and, I, and the minute I saw him, like, and like, you know, it's my first time seeing him not in 480p on my computer screen, I lost all social skills. I'm pretty sure what I said was, oh, Asia, oh. And I'm like, when did catch my breath? Yeah. Uh, I really like you. I <laughs> think that's all I said. And, you know, he kind of put two and two together. And my friend had told him, hey, like, you know, we're a really big fan. And my friend's just getting off this ride. If you could wait a little bit. And as I stood and I gave my friend my phone, it was a flip phone. So it was like, you know, 0.2 megapixels. It was like a high-definition Minecraft picture. But as I handed him my phone and I slid next to him and, like, he put his arm around me, it, like, I was hit with this wave of, like, wow, I can't believe this S-list celebrity waited 10 minutes to meet and take a picture of an eight, of a 13-year-old kid that he never knew and will probably never meet again. And I was washed this wave of like, you're the best. Like, you are so amazing. Like, you are a saint. He took that picture. I like awkwardly waved. And like, I remember like, we like tried to wave to his girlfriend. We're so sorry. Like, thank you for letting us take a picture with him. And I never saw him again. But that, that memory is so ingrained into my brain. Like, I remember, the, like, seeing him up close and, like, seeing his earrings and his faux hawk and who he was. And like, seeing his, he was just in a plain black t-shirt. And I remember thinking, like, oh, my goodness. Like, he's real. 
Like, this guy is not just some concept on the internet. He's a real-life person, and he's talking to me. And I had this wave of, like, awe and wonder. And then when he went out of his way, when it hit me that he had waited for me, some no-name 13-year-old, he waited for me despite the fact that he was here with his girlfriend on personal time. I was, I was almost holding back tears. I was so grateful. And I was like, this is such an amazing person, man. I'm going to buy all your songs. And actually, this is like the tune. Like, I remember I bought his iTunes, one of his iTunes songs for like 99 cents. I was like, number one fan right here. But again, this is on a much smaller scale. But if you've ever met a celebrity, if you've ever met someone that, that puts you in a state of awe, you know a little bit on a much smaller level what the fear of God a little bit is like. It's the sense that there is someone that is so much greater and cooler and more awesome than me, and the sense of gratitude and gratefulness that he came and catered to me, that this musician, this celebrity, this, this hero of mine would come down and wait and take a picture with me. That, in, in a nutshell, really, I feel like, is what the fear of God is about. It's an acknowledgement of who the other person is, of how great and powerful and way above you God is, and then a feeling of gratitude when you realize that amazing, powerful, smart, busy person cares about me. And when we approach our relationship with God, with the fear of God, with amazement, with gratitude and admiration, it allows us to treat and view God properly. And and the author talks about how you should fear the Lord and obey his commandments. And then obedience comes naturally. And again, obedience is also another word we don't like. It's kind of like a belittling word. Obedience dictates that there's a hierarchy. There is something, and if you're obeying this something, you're underneath that something. Whether it's the law or your parents or a teacher, it establishes a sort of hierarchy. And it doesn't sit well with most of us. But I think that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to establish that at the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a sense of, you read the book, and there's almost a sense of almost helplessness because the teacher is pointing out all these things that you don't understand, all these things that you can't control, all these things that don't make sense to you. And in a word, it's a very, very humbling book. The book of Ecclesiastes is not an empowering book. It doesn't fill you with inspiration and, and desire to do these things. If anything, the author of Ecclesiastes and the teacher they don't empower you. They invite you to look for power somewhere else. They don't make you feel like you can do whatever. It reminds you of how little you do know at times, but assures you that there is someone that does know and someone that is in control. And the practical application for you and me comes from an understanding of that truth, of who God is and who you are and what the fear of the Lord has to do in our relationship with him. And that at the core of our sinful nature, at the core of all the sin that we do, all the disobedience we have to God, there is a small part in all of us that wants to do what Lucifer did and switch places with God. When you look back at my relationship with God and all the moments I've had tension and, and hardships and, and wasn't falling out with my relationship with God, it stemmed from me wanting to be God and pushing God down or dragging God down to my level and God, do what I want to do and not letting God be God but really, when it comes down to your relationship with God, it's a struggle that all of us have probably come to. Who really calls the shots in your life? Who really determines what's right and wrong? Who really gets the final say in your life? Is it you or is it the God that you pray to? 
And the book of Ecclesiastes highlighted for me just how little I understood and how little I was control, I was able to control. And the advice that the teacher and the author come to is one and the same. Acknowledge that you can't control. Acknowledge that there are things outside of your control, but that's because you are a human and you are not God. So what you should do is two things. He says, surrender. Let go of what you never really were able to hold on to to begin with and submit. Put yourself in a posture of humility and respect before a being that is infinitely more competent and wise. Because when you do so, the argument that the teacher and the author makes is when you're able to surrender and submit and recognize and acknowledge who you are in front of God, you will start to truly enjoy life. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher is not advocating for an ascetic lifestyle. He's not saying we should all shave our heads, go and wear sackcloth in the wilderness and never enjoy anything. If you read the book, it's full of mentions and verses of how you should enjoy life and make the most out of it, but you can only really do so when you surrender and submit to God. That when you establish who you are and who God is, then you're truly able to make the most out of life. Then we're able to place the uncertainty of the future. And think about most of the stuff that you stress about. A lot of the stuff that we stress about are things that are outside of our control. The uncertainty of the future. What's going to happen five, ten years? Am I going to be ready? Am I going to be prepared? The reality is you have no control over that. Or the desire to control older. I imagine that a lot of parents in here, one of the main stresses you may have in raising children is, what are they going to be like when they're no longer my children, they're adults? Am I doing my best? Are they going to turn out the way I would like them to turn out? I imagine that's a very, I say that respectfully, being not a parent myself, but I imagine that's a pretty big stress in being a parent. What are, what are my children going to be like? Are they going to live a good life? Are they going to make wise choices? But the reality is we don't really get to control that. Or the things that we try to accumulate in the hopes of creating meaning when we surrender and submit all these things, all these stresses, all these things that we try to control, we're able to let go of and submit to God. But of course, this is easier said than done because you, maybe like me, we enjoy being in control. We enjoy knowing, right? We don't like being told what to do without having all the information. And for most of us, especially if you're adults and parents, for 99% of your life, you do have control, right, of your family, of your, especially if you're a boss or you own your own business. You know and you understand and you control everything that happens. And for a lot of us, everyone in this room, however, has been a beneficiary of this dynamic of a hierarchy of not being able to be in control. Think about the relationship between a parent and a child. When a child has benevolent, competent parents, the child's life flourishes, when a child is able to focus on being a child and trust their parents, and parents are able to focus on being parents and looking out for their children, I imagine that's where a healthy family looks like. But everyone loses when the child tries to become the parent. And I asked this question in our youth Sabbath school as well, because I remember a time in my life, probably the most disrespectful I'd ever been to my parents growing up. And again, and I, I, I can't help but see a connection with this in my relationship with my heavenly father. But I was about 16 or 17. Um, and, you know, I grew up with immigrant family and, and money was always tight. And I remember being 16, 17 and wanting a car. It's like, Mom, I, I want a car. And not only did I assume I would get a car, I assumed I would get to pick what car I got. And you may or may not know what this car is, but I told my mom, I like, picked, I think I saw, we got like a flyer in the mail. And I saw like 
the local dealership had a sale on the car that I wanted, and it was a Scion FRS, or a Subaru BRZ. And if you don't know what that is, it's a small, sporty-looking car that is neither fast nor practical. It just looks like it would be. But I remember I saw that car, and I was like, this, this is my car, right? And it's not particularly expensive, but that's also because it's not particularly anything. It's not that fast. It's not that... It's really, I just thought it looked really, really cool. It's super small, only seats two people. And I remember telling my mom, like, Mom, like, can I get this car? And I want to see the look, on, if I had to describe the look on my mom's face, it was she didn't know whether to laugh because it was a joke or she was confused at what I was asking her. And I was like, no, like, Mom, like, look, isn't this car so awesome? Like, I want, give me this car. And there was, like, an awkward pause, and she was like, what are you saying? And I was like, you know, like, getting a car, right? And she was like, are you? And I was like, am I? <laughs> well, I'm getting this one, no? And, and she basically shut that idea down real quick and, you know, basically, like, dismissed me to my room. And I remember being so upset. Like, I was so, like, what? Like, why can't I get this car? And, like, this is where the true disrespect happens. And I went to my mom and I was like, why can't we afford this? Like, why can't you give me this car? Right? And in a sense, what I was saying was, like, I demand to know you as my parent, clearly there's a hierarchy, but I jumped that gap so quickly. I ran, like, I demand to know why I can't have this. I demand to know. Give me, show me the family finances. Let me figure it out. Like, imagine if your kid came up to you, right? And, you know, Christmas is around, like, three corners from now. But, you know, Christmas around the corner. And, you know, Mom, Dad, I really want this computer. I really want this Game Boy. And you're like, no, no, we're not going to get you that. And imagine if your kid, instead of saying, okay, that's cool. It was a bit of a reach. But instead of saying that, they came up to you and was like, Dad, bring me your pay stub. Bring me your bank account information. Let, let's figure this out. I bet you I can figure out a way to make this work, right? That would be the most disrespectful, ridiculous thing ever. But in a sense, that only happens when we jump that gap and a child and a parent, despite this hierarchy, jumps the gap and says, you and I are equal. And you are here to cater to my needs. I mean, if any of your children did that, I'm, I'm lucky to be here today, honestly after that account, but as cringing, and I really need to start coming with more flattering sermon illustrations, but as cringy as that experience was for me, I can't help but feel that there are similarities between that interaction I had with my parents and the way I treat my Heavenly Father. That in a lot of ways, I demand that He comes to my beck and call. That I demand that He loves me. And it's ridiculous when I don't get my way, despite the fact that I'm praying and I feel like I'm doing my part, and at times, maybe you and I do the same, we don't offer the same respect and trust that we expect from our children towards God. In a lot of ways, that's at the cornerstone of what the book of Ecclesiastes is talking about. That in light of who you are, in light of who God is, that when you accept that reality and you acknowledge that God is God, and I am a human, and you allow yourself to surrender and submit to him, you can truly flourish in your life because the dynamics and the relational dynamics are in your favor. As we close, you know, this is kind of a sermon where I thought, about, okay, so what do you do with this? And it's really easy to leave church and be like, okay, well, I'll just remember God is God and I am me. But I want us to do something now before we leave. As we close this message, as we close with prayer, I want us to do two things and I'll give time to do both during the prayer that we close with. But an acknowledgement and a return. During this prayer, I want us to acknowledge. And if you feel 
And if any part of this sermon tugs at your heart or any part of the sermon is relatable to you in your own personal relationship with God, a prayer of acknowledgement where we acknowledge who God is, who we are, and a prayer of return, choosing to run back to the Father who loves us more than his own existence. I think the only true way to apply this into our lives is to have a posture of prayer, of confession and repentance to our Heavenly Father. So as we close with prayer, I'll include a time and a pause for both where we can acknowledge who God is in our lives and pray a prayer of return and repentance to acknowledge the wrong that we've done, to make a, re- to make a decision to put God where he belongs and submit to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is one that is much easier said than done, much easier preached about than lived, Father. Lord, in so many ways, Lord, our relationship with you has has been one that's been taken for granted, Father. And I speak for myself and maybe for who else, whoever else in this room, that we've lost that sense of awe and wonder and really just respect of who you are for us. Father, so in this moment... Hear our prayer, Lord, as we acknowledge who you are and who we are. We acknowledge your greatness and your love for us. And Father, Lord, as we, as we pray in a prayer of acknowledgement to understand who you are and who we are, Lord, we follow that up with a prayer of repentance to come back to you, Lord, a return. We acknowledge that because we are who we are, sinful humans, and you are that perfect God, we run back to you, Lord, the Father that welcomes us with open arms every time we fall short, Lord. We pray a prayer of repentance now. Father, this is our prayer, Lord, that we can run back to you, Lord. We acknowledge that you are great and you're wonderful and that for some reason that we may never truly understand, you came to the earth because of a love for us that we truly may never comprehend. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us despite who we are. I praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.